just in case you didn't know. Okay. Um, I said kia ora, hello, and my name's Jenny. Okay, uh, I'll read in English, not Māori. Okay, sorry. Uh, Luke 15, 11 to 32, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that his pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The oldest brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. Thank you, Jenny. This is a wonderful parable, eh? It's really a very rich parable. And I've been uh, looking at a number of books that, that teach about this parable. And uh, one of them is Poet and Peasant by Kenneth Bailey. So if you want to get a copy of that, I thoroughly recommend it. It's, it's got a, so much detail in it about this story and what 
you can actually take out of it that it was difficult to know what to leave out of the sermon. <laughs> and the other one is um, The Return of the Prodigal by Henry Nowen. That is a really amazing book, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. So this parable is a third in the, a series of parables describing lostness. And the, the first parable is um, the parable of the lost sheep, in which the sheep got stupidly lost. And if you've worked with sheep at all, you'll know that they're very, very frustrating. And <laughs> you can understand how a sheep can get stupidly lost, or foolishly is a, probably a kinder word. And the second is the parable of the lost coin, in which the coin is accidentally lost. And the third is this one, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's interesting that both the prodigal and his elder brother are deliberately lost. Right, so you got stupidly lost, accidentally lost, and deliberately lost. And both of the sons are deliberately lost. So both, you know, one leaves, and at the end of the story, the other one's left. Okay, deliberately choosing to be lost. And Jesus told them in response to the Pharisees grumbling about how we welcomed sinners and ate with them. And uh, so he told these three parables. And of course, the elder brother character represents the Pharisees. And we'll talk about that a bit later on too. I don't know about you, but there is a real beauty in this parable that speaks deeply to me. Maybe it's because it answers some of the deepest questions I've asked myself throughout my life. What is home? Where is home? Will I ever find home? Will the longing in my heart for my true home ever be satisfied? Is there a place where I belong? Is there a place where I'm accepted as family, where there is a place for me at the table? If I fail, will I still be welcomed home? And in most of uh, Jesus' parables, um, we seem to get caught up in the, in the strong emotions of the characters we identify with, like in, in this case, the two sons. And, and the attention, we lose attention on the, the main character represented by the Lord, God, our Father. And um, yeah, it's interesting that that is a common theme throughout the parables of Jesus. And for many years of my life, I only ever identified with the elder uh, brother in the story I lived with bitterness and resentment because I tried my best to be good and I felt like I was being punished for it so I really got the elder brother I really got what he said I could really identify with it um, but I knew that there was something wrong in what he was saying and after a long spiritual journey I came to see that the elder brother was lost too much like I had been and the tragedy of the elder brother is that he didn't know he was lost. He thought he wasn't lost, but he was. And for those of us who've kind of brought up in the church and we've tried our best to be good and um, some, you know, life hasn't worked out sometimes as we hoped, it's, uh, it's easy to feel like that. So I really identified with the elder brother. But after reading, reading Henry Nowen's book, The Return of the Prodigal, I came to see in many ways... I was like the prodigal son as well. So today as we explore this beautiful parable, I want to ask yourself the same question that Henry now asks himself. In what ways am I like the prodigal son? In what ways am I like the elder son? And how do the words and actions of the father call me home from both perspectives?
But before we begin, as always, we need to place the parable in the historical context of those who heard it and how they might have reacted to it. And it's easy to read uh, those verses from Luke, isn't it? And it says, the youngest son asked his dad for his share of the inheritance, and his dad said, yeah, okay. And <laughs> it's kind of like, okay. And we, and we lose what that meant. Uh-oh, helps if I turn it on. Kenneth Bailey helps us to understand what this meant in its context. For over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. As I've noted elsewhere, the conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made a request like this in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. So that's what it means in its context. And if you put, put yourself in that, in that zone of the father, if your child asks for, your, for his share of the, or her share of the inheritance that still belonged to you while you were still alive and healthy, it would mean kind of the same thing, I think. I wish you would hurry up and die. And in the light of this understanding, what's incredible is that the father agrees to do it. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. He should have got a hiding, but the, the father says, okay. He should have exploded and beat the boy for the cruel implications of his demand. In fact, in all the years Kenneth Bailey was in the Middle East, he only came across two instances where a son asked his father, who was in good health, for his inheritance. And in the first case, the father died three months later because the shock to him was so great that for him life ended the night that his son asked him for his inheritance because it meant, I wish you had died. I wish you would die. And so he died three months later, this, this, particular, this, this actual father. And in the second case, the father drove the son from the house, drove him out of the house. So it has happened in the past, but um, yeah, what, what, what extraordinary consequences uh, for the request. So it's, <clears throat> it's an extraordinary insult to the father, and it's an unfathomable act of grace <coughs> that the father agrees to his request. But while I was preparing for this study, Kenneth Bailey pointed out something that I'd never seen before. Isn't it amazing how you can read the same passage of scripture all your life and you see something brand new? And the, the thing that's new is the eldest son got his share of the estate as well. There it is. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. <laughs> so the elder brother got his share of the estate as well. Now, admittedly, the younger son turned it into cash and disappeared with the cash. The older son didn't. So he didn't leave his father penniless. So the father would still have been needed to have the rest of that property to sustain him. But isn't that interesting that he didn't protest? 
the elder son should have said, right? Dad, I don't want my share of the estate now. I want, I, I love you. I, I love my relationship with you. I, want, I don't want you dead. I want you to be around. So I'm going to say no to this, this ridiculous situation. That's what he should have said, right? But his silence said, okay, I'm, I'm okay with this, right? And I didn't see that before. I always thought the elder brother was like faultless. But not so faultless after all, eh? <laughs> He's not the righteous chap he holds himself up to be. He also is in a hurry for his father to die. So let's focus on the prodigal now. So as I said, he needed to turn the land into cash. And he, it didn't take long because it said not long after he took his money and went. So what, how, would have he, how would he have turned that land into cash? He would have gone into the village and asked a bunch of people that he, know, he knew had the money to buy it. He would have said, you know, would you like to buy this of me? So in the context of that time, as we've just read, how do you think that that would have been received in the village? Yeah, shock and horror. And you little... So-and-so. So-and-so. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Oh, I just about said something else. Imagine the disgust in the village. Who is this little so-and-so? Once he left the village, he would never be welcome back, right? Oh, horribly, horribly embarrassed. Yep. Yep. Absolute massive shame on the family. And if he ever showed his face again, he would risk a severe beating from the whole, from the whole village. And, and Kenneth Bailey talks about um, one of the terrors of the Middle Eastern mindset, which is to have a mob come against you, like everyone turn against you. That is one of the, like, they're real community-minded in the Middle East. And to have the whole community come against you and reject you, that's one of the terrors of the Middle East. So this is what would happen if the if the son came back again. So anyway, the prodigal heads off with his cash and he squanders it in mild living. Um, and there's a bit of, I don't know, I didn't get to the bottom of it, but um, some translations say living in debauchery. But Kenneth Bailey seemed to suggest that he he squandered the wealth in, in like extravagance rather than immoral, immorality. So... Yeah, I would, if you want to do some further, it could be, yeah, yeah. And, and though he says that, you know, right at the end when the elder son says, your son has been spending your money on prostitutes and that, he, he said that it was likely to be a, a um, what's it called? Exaggeration, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that, I yeah, I didn't get to the bottom of, bottom of that, but I thought that was interesting. But anyway... Some translations say debauchery, which, of course, means prostitutes. Um, so anyway, it all went. He spent all his money, and a famine came on the land, and he ends up feeding pigs for a citizen of that country. And knowing the Jewish attitude to pigs doesn't get much lower than that, right? It's the bottom of the barrel. And he, it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Um, but evidently the, the wild pods 
which is which I referred to in this parable, is a wild um, shrub that grows in the pasture lands of the Middle East, and it hasn't got enough nourishment to keep a man alive. So even if even if he could eat it, even if he could fill his stomach, he would still end up dying. So it's, he's he's right in trouble. He is. He is. He and, and that's that's the that captures the attitude that that the father should <laughs> should have for this guy. Because it's the it's the attitude that everyone else had. And the scriptures also say, but no one gave him anything. And Kenneth Bailey suggested that that means he tried begging as well, and no one gave him anything while he was begging. So he's run out of options. He's actually starving to death. <clears throat> and in Celebrate Recovery, um, there's a term called reaching the bottom or hitting the bottom. And it's when your addiction overpowers you, like could be drug addiction, it could be pornography or whatever. But it, it gets you to the stage where you know it's, it's I'm going to die if I don't change direction. And this is kind of what it means when he came to his senses. But doesn't seem to be any remorse for the sins he committed. It's just that he's starving. <laughs> You'd hope that he's like, oh, man, I'm, I'm really not a very nice chap, you know, and I've really said some horrible things. But he's like, no, I'm starving, and even the servants in my father's house have food, so I need to hatch a plan to try and get some of that food. That's, that's what's going on here, which is... Not very nice again, is it, really? The prodigal's plan was to become a hired servant in his father's household, and in Jesus' day, it meant an outsider who did not belong to the state who was employed as a casual labourer. So it's kind of like a contractor. So as a contractor, you're in a precarious position, right? Because as soon as anything bad happens, well, you're the first one to go. So it is a precarious position. But... He would at least be a free man and not a slave. He would be earning his own income. He would be living independently in the local village. Although, as we've just said, he's got to run the gauntlet if he ever comes back to the village and he's likely to get a good hiding. He would not have to reconcile with his brother if he's like just becomes like a contractor. And he wouldn't be under the authority of his father. In fact... In time, he might even be able to repay some of what he has wasted from his father. So this is a plan to save himself. He doesn't want any grace. Well, he doesn't think, perhaps he doesn't think he'll get any grace because of what he's done. So he comes up with this plan to save himself. <clears throat> Sound familiar? Anyone hatch their own plans like this guy? I just try harder next time I'll be you know God will think better of me I'll think better of myself and his focus seems solely on the lost money apologizing for what he had lost and trying to repay it there's nothing in what he says in his thinking for the appreciation of the hurt that he's caused his father the shame he's brought on his family or any goal to try and restore the relationship with his father. It's like none of those key things that seem to like even, even register in his mind. 
So he sets off to go home. Now, I've I've read the story many times before, and I've always wondered, you know, vineyards out in the country, what was the father running? Uh, He seemed to run through the village, or he seemed to be on the edge of the village when he meets his son. I was like, well, what's that about? And Kenneth Bailey says that landowners in the east live in the village, not out on the land, because, again, they're community-minded. So they don't, they're not like us, like me and Sarah live miles out in the country, right? And, um, but in the, in the east, in the Middle East, um, they live in town because they're so community-minded. <clears throat> so no doubt the villagers have told the father <laughs> what they think of him, what, he, what he, they think he should have done to the, uh, to the prodigal. And the father knows that should his son ever show his face in the village, it's very likely, as, as, as we've talked about, that they will gather as a mob to uh, really persecute him or perhaps even give him have a, a beating. So what the father does in this homecoming scene can best be understood as a series of dramatic actions designed to protect his son from the hostility of the village and restore him to fellowship. And these actions begin when he first sees his son and runs to meet him. Now first up, that the father saw his son from a long way off meant that he was watching and waiting for him. Watching and waiting. He was longing for his son to come home. And that's, that's deeply touching. If, if, this, if this character represents God, this is God. God watches and waits, longing for us to come home. <clears throat> and next, in the, in the Middle East, for an, a noble man to run is humiliating. A noble man does not run. It's a bit like what we have here, you know, when you cross the road. It's not cool to kind of you know, run and, and just get across the road. It's, it's, it's sometimes cool. You see some people just deliberately holding up the traffic, right? It's kind of like, it's, yeah. It's a lot more than that, actually, to be honest. <laughs> so this whole scene is humiliating for the father because he should be running to him with a stick, you know. But he runs through the village towards his son with his arms open. And you can almost imagine the villagers saying, what is the old fool doing now? What is he doing? What the son deserves is ruthless hostility, but what he receives is a public reconciliation with a love that is too profound for words. To throw his arms around his son and kiss him after he has been in the pigsty is verging on Unbelievable, isn't it? Who would you do that? You know, son, get in the shower, mate, and then we'll talk. Yeah, you know what I mean. But no, there's no judgment in the father's response. He doesn't say, "What was that about, mate?" You know, how can you justify what you did? There's none of that. There's only jubilation and celebration. And in calling for a robe, a ring for his finger, and sandals for his feet, he publicly restores the prodigal to full sonship without words. So it's basically saying to the villagers, he's my son, don't touch him. 
On receiving the welcome home, you notice that the son only says part of his prepared speech. He leaves out the part of becoming a hired servant. And some scholars have suggested this is once again like, wow, this is going better than I expected. I might actually end up with this thing going my way quite a bit, you know. So if I just shut up and don't say anything about the hired servant, I might end up in a really good position. But Kenneth Bailey disagreed. Being restored to sonship will mean he will once again be under the authority of the father. He will have to reconcile with his brother. Imagine how that's going to go. And his plan to save himself will have to be abandoned. And that's probably the kicker. He's got this plan to save himself, and now, in the face of grace, he's going to have to let it go. So a better explanation is that he is overwhelmed with his father's grace, and he can finally see that the point is not the lost money, but the broken relationship with his father. And he can't do anything about that. He cannot heal it. To try and compensate his, his father with money to restore a broken relationship is an insult. I mean, you can't fix a relationship with money. And if you can, it's not probably something that you should be trying to fix. He finally understands that any new relationship must be a pure gift from his father. He can offer no solution. I am unworthy is now the only response. And as Kenneth Bailey says, oh, there's the pigs, and there's the, there's the homecoming. Repentance finally turns out to be the capacity to forego pride and accept graciousness. And this is probably one of the key points, I think, uh, for today. Repentance finally turns out to be the capacity to forego pride and accept graciousness. It takes humility to accept grace. Because you have to leave your plan to save yourself behind. You can't have both. And in accepting grace, grace is unmerited favour, right? You have to admit that you're unmerited. You're undeserving of that grace. And that's probably easier for the prodigal than it is for the elder brother. So let's turn to the elder brother now. So the elder brother's suspicious reaction to the loud celebration shows that his own relationship with his father is broken. I've ne- I, n- I never saw that before. You know, if he was if, if he had a good relationship with his father in the household, if he saw if he heard celebration, you'd if you wanted to know what's going on, what'd you do? You'd walk in and say, "Hey, what's happening?" Why the party? This looks awesome. But no, he grabs one of the servants, says, what's going on? He doesn't go in. So this shows uh, even more uh, what his bitterness, how how his bitterness has, has grown in him. Even when his father comes out to plead with him to come in, to come home, he refuses. And I, again, I... If you read what he says, you can kind of sense that there's something wrong. But, but Kenneth Bailey articulates it. And the articulation is, 
Like he says to his father, you never even gave me a, a goat to have with my friends. Now that means that the, the idea of the eldest son for the best celebration is to have a party with his friends without his father. That's what he thinks is a true celebration. Now I never saw that before. So that again, you see what I mean? Like he, his idea of a celebration is to have a party with his mates over here. And his, his household is over there. His dad's over there. There's no sense of, Dad, come and have a party with me. Dad, stay over there while I have a party with my mates. Is that, you get it? So that's a great distance in relationship between him and his father, right? I mean, when I think of a, having a big party, the first person I think of is my dad. I want my dad there. He displays the attitude and spirit of a slave, not a son. Even though he's got half the wealth of his father that we looked at, right? He's, got, he's given it. His father has given it to him. But he displays the attitude and spirit of a slave, not a son. Now once again, like, you imagine the, the scene. That there's a big party going on. Prodigal son's inside. All the villagers are there. Another point that Kenneth Bailey said that killing a calf is a big, it's a big thing, right? So you're going to need a lot of people to eat it. So that means that all the villagers are there. Everyone knows, can't see their elder brother, but he's coming. Then if they didn't hear the raised um, heated voices, they would soon know what happened. So once again, the father stands humiliated by his son, one of his sons. Instead of scolding the elder son, possibly giving him a clip over, yep, clip over the ear, tell him to get inside, the father begs him to come inside. Again, there's no scolding or judgment, just a, a pleading. But in the face of this wonderful expression of grace, there is no repentance in the eldest son, as there was in the younger. <clears throat> His focus is again on the wealth, not the relationship. With his father. So they're more in common than you think. What the father wanted was a relationship with his two sons. And they were so caught up in, in actually getting the father's wealth that they missed this huge aspect of relationship with the father. And we see the spirit of the Pharisee here, don't we? The elder son has just insulted his father publicly and yet claims to never have disobeyed his father. Even though he dwelt in his father's house, yet his heart was just as far from his father's as his younger brother's was. Although he appeared to be a good son externally, in reality his focus was on the wealth, just as the younger son was. And he ends the parable by becoming, choosing to be an outcast from his own family. Because he says, this is your son, he didn't say my brother. So he's saying, okay, I'm backing out. That's, you guys do what you want. I'm out of here. 
And the parable finishes, and we're left wondering, does he come in? What does he do? Will he reconcile with his younger brother? We will never know. We're just left hanging. Now, I talked about Henry Nouwen at the start of the talk, but he was a Catholic priest who was in ministry for decades. And towards the end of his life, he, he went through an extremely traumatic experience that really shook him to the foundations of his being. And through this incredibly painful time and journey, uh, Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal really spoke to him. And he, he spends this whole book like drawing out aspects of this. This is not intended to be a, a true depiction of the prodigal, but because the, the sun is, is there in the background. And one hand is masculine, the other hand is feminine, if you look closely. There's all sorts of stuff in this parable. And the father looks like he's almost blind. So there's a, <laughs> there's a lot that he draws out of this painting in, in the book. And it's profoundly moving. But Henry Nouwen realised that the words that God spoke to Jesus at his baptism, if you remember, the heavens opened and a dove came down and rested on Jesus. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These were the same words that God was speaking to him. In fact, home was the place of contentment and peace where he hears the voice of the Lord saying these words to him. And I believe that's true for us. To be at home with the Lord is that place of contentment and peace where we hear the Lord saying the same thing. You are my beloved and you I am well pleased. And there's part of us that wants to spit that out. Right? Oh, you can't be you can't be pleased with me. No, I've done that and that, and I just yelled at someone. Don't do enough, yeah. You know, there's a part of us that, that wants to no, that can't be true. But these are this is these are the words that the Lord speak wants to speak to us. And yet he found that like both of the sons in the parable, he would try and find the love he so desperately needed and wanted elsewhere. So he could see himself in both of the sons. So the prodigal, he writes these words. I am the prodigal son every time I search for an unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persisting and looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I am called a child of God, the beloved of my father? I am constantly surprised at how I keep taking the gifts God has given me, my health, my intellectual and emotional gifts, and keep using them to impress people, receive affirmation and praise, compete for rewards, instead of developing them for the glory of God. So he's basically saying there's a part of him, and I think there's a part in all of us, that desperately wants other people to say, oh, you're so awesome. Hey, <laughs> you're such a great guy. Oh, nah. Stop it. That, yeah, keep going. There's a part, and what that means is, is if, 
if that in an unhealthy way, and, and Henry Nowen's saying that this is an unhealthy part of him, is that he leaves home. So when the Father, God the Father says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it's not enough. I need these people to say that. And so we turn our back and we leave. And of the elder son, he writes this, the lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach precisely because it is so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. I know from my own life how diligently I've tried to be good, acceptable, likable and a worthy example for others. There was always the conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and the constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all of that there came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity and even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult for me to feel at home in my father's house. I became less free, less spontaneous, less playful and others came to see me as a somewhat heavy person. So again, you can see this in that, in that statement. Yes, it's good to love virtue. Yes, it's good to try and please God. But when it, it can so easily twist in us so that we, we use it to try and get people to say how awesome we are. Oh, I must be deserving of good things because I've done all these wonderful things. And that's what he's touching on here. Again, it's a leaving home. It's a turning, a turning our backs on our Father who says, you are my beloved and you are well pleased. We don't need anyone else's affirmation, right? That's what this is all about. Can you identify with what he says? I certainly can. Both sons believe that the love of their father is dependent on what they do. The younger son believes he's no longer worthy to be loved by his father because of his rebellion, and the elder son believes he is deserving of his father's love because he has been good, and they're both wrong. The father calls both of his sons home with equal intensity because they are his sons, not because of what they've done. And this is such a difficult mindset for us to get into, but it's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To separate ourselves from what we do and to know that we are loved because we are children of God. The parable of the prodigal son teaches us that above all else we are beloved children of God our Father and he desires a relationship of intimacy, joy and peace with us. Home is that place of spiritual rest where we hear him telling us we are his beloved so that we aren't pulled away from his presence by voices of the world or repelled from his presence by bitterness when our life doesn't work out like we want it to and we think we deserve more. And I like to think that there might be a time in my life that I will be truly home in this life. I'll be able to stay in the presence of God and just hear his voice telling me, you are my beloved son. But I'm not sure that I will ever reach there. I mean, I'm, that's my goal. That's where I'm heading. But I was writing my, finishing off my sermon at 11 o'clock last night. Anya wakes up. <clears throat> Resentment. Here I am trying to do this sermon, God, and 
can't you keep on your sleep for a bit longer? She wakes up again at 12.30. So easy, right? Resentment, boof, there it is. Elder brother, spirit of the elder brother. But again, it's the father calling me home. That's what brings me home. No. Just as well. So the reality is that I'm a broken man in a broken world. I am and always will be vulnerable to lostness. In fact, it is when I think that I'm no longer vulnerable to lostness that I'm most vulnerable. Yet I am in Christ and he is the perfect son, as as Henry Nouwen points out. He is the younger son without being rebellious and the elder son without being resentful. I will build my life on his love and trust in his grace to cover my imperfect sonship. So as I invite the music team up to to play, let's just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you call to us to come home, that you call us your beloved children. Lord, help us to always have a soft heart towards you. That, Lord, when we are tempted to turn elsewhere for, those, for the affirmation that we so desperately need, Lord, your voice would turn us around and that we would come back home to you. Lord, teach us what it means to stay in your presence. Help us to stay in your presence, Lord. And to receive from you the love and the affirmation we so desperately need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and we'll sing, O come to the altar.